0: When it comes to mindfulness and meditation, the science is in. What we know in research after research after research is that mindfulness and meditation literally change our brains. The other thing I didn't realise and you'll hear in this conversation is that it has also been found to have an impact on our genes, which is extraordinary. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Dr. Elise Baliou is the author of number one best-selling book, The Happiness Plan. She's also the founder of Mindful in May, which is the world's largest online global mindfulness fundraising campaign, and it happens every May. I've admired Elise's work for a number of years now, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. A doctor trained in psychiatry turned social entrepreneur and mindfulness expert she's passionate about supporting individuals and organizations to develop inner tools for greater well-being and for flourishing not just getting through her work has been featured in the huffington post new york times and the australian television she's recognized by the australian financial review in 2019 as the afr one of the afr women of influence Before you hear from her, let me tell you a little bit about Mindful in May. It's a community and the support that you will need to incorporate mindful meditation into your day. If you're one of those people who goes, "Uh, I'm just not very good at mindfulness or meditation, it's not for me, or I've tried it, I've given it a go, it just didn't work, uh, then this is your community and this is your call to consistency, regardless of how busy you are. It is a 31-day program and it will, you get support from the best teachers in neuroscience and meditation all around the world with the call to just look at 10 minutes every day for meditation and mindfulness. There's also a chance to donate to a cause that's aimed to fix global water crisis. Elise and this work has raised over a million dollars so far, which is extraordinary. And you can find out more at mindfulinmay.org and sign up. But for now... Listen to the questions about what is mindfulness, what the science says about mindfulness, and why community and support is the key to changing habits from the driven and the wisdom chaser, Dr. Elise Raleigh. Dr. Elise, it's just lovely to be connecting with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Really
0: keen to obviously talk about mindfulness and meditation, but to kickstart, talk me about the pathway or the journey, for want of a better word, from studying medicine to then specialising in psychiatry to then shifting into educating and talking about mindfulness as your core focus. Tell me about that journey.
1: So from a very young age, I was always really fascinated by the big questions, why are we here? What's my purpose on this planet? How can I make a difference? These were questions that I was asking from a very young age, and I was quite sort of existentially orientated, if you if you like. And I grew up in a family with a doctor, a psychologist, and so the influences in my family were kind of the the bookshelves were filled with psychology books, and my mum was also into meditation. So there were quite strong influences there. So I decided to go into medicine with the view of becoming a psychiatrist. That was really about wanting to immerse myself in in the, in the study of the brain and learn everything I could about the human brain and then help people to just live great lives. And so along that journey, you know, it was a pretty fascinating journey. It was also a really challenging journey. And along the way, what I realized was that psychiatry was really focused on meeting people where they're really at their absolute worst and a lot of it is about crisis management and making sure you're keeping people safe when they're really unwell and what I realized is that I was just I was interested in transformation and helping people but I was actually really interested in the other side of it really helping people flourish and and learn how to use their minds and brains so that hopefully they don't fall into despairing places and and they have inner tools to sort of sustain their own resilience and meet life's challenges and just basically flourish and so it was a bit of a it was a circuitous route as all good stories are, but I I came upon meditation at quite an early age and that was sort of off to the side. But then I got more and more interested in it and started, you know, at the same time as I was practicing medicine and psychiatry, going off to meditation retreats in my annual leave. and, And I just sort of realized that that path just started to really light me up. And it wasn't until I went to a conference that was gathering lots of neuroscientists and some of the world's leaders in meditation and the brain. This was a long time ago that the world of meditation and science came together for me. And I I just had this moment of real excitement. Wow, this practice can actually change the brain. And so I sat in that and then was on a meditation retreat, a silent meditation retreat, and had this moment where it really was a moment like this idea of, of creating this campaign. So then I started that alongside psychiatry, but at some point I needed to make a decision to choose one because the demands of both of them were were just too much. And so I chose to kind of leap into this more entrepreneurial journey around um, creating a global meditation movement, which at the time was not necessarily where I knew that was going. It was really I was following my curiosity and my passion and then it kind of unfolded.
0: Sounds like these, you know, kind of almost two pathways. One in that kind of medicine, but having your own meditation kind of practice, and then kind of seeing these these twine together. In terms of, I'm really interested in, as you said, your your mother was involved in meditation or had meditation as a practice. Do you remember there being a point in time? Sometimes in our own childhoods, we we do have this kind of moment of going, oh, actually, the things that we've seen in our parents, we want to take on board as well. Do you remember a time when it sounds like meditation was around you and and you that was kind of part of your world? Do you remember a time when you kind of went actually this is something that that I want to pursue for me and and continue on for my own life?
1: I think it was more I mean, there was always an interest. There was always a fascination and interest, and you know, at a very, I'd be, I'd read all the books. You know, that all the books were on the bookshelf. The Jack Kornfields, the John Sins, the, you know, the Sogyal Rinpoche's, all of it. I'd immersed in the sort of intellect of it. But I think, like for many people, often we come to meditation when we have a need, because most of us are so into doing and being, you know, doing and racing around and. Getting things done in our life, that actually sitting still is a very confronting thing for a lot of people. It's hard. There's often a lot of resistance to actually get your bum on the seat and stop. And so for me, the practice of meditation in a committed way came sort of later on where I really needed it because I was working in medicine and I was facing, you know, as you do in all different careers, but in medicine, you know, you're facing death. I worked in palliative care for my first job and I was in the, you know, immersed in the realm of watching and witnessing people die. And it was very emotionally taxing and, and overwhelming. So I kind of recognized I needed something. And so I kind of turned to meditation as a practice when it was a real need in a way, but I guess The point about speaking to my family and influence is that I think we're all very influenced in some way by the milieu we grow up in and for some of us it's a reaction against that and for others it's a replication or it's a there's a positive influence there that you're following and so I think for me there was that you know I was very fortunate to have that positive influence. This
0: combination of not only your experience, but also the science through medicine, through through Western research, there is so, I mean, the, the science is in around mindfulness and meditation. There has been so many studies done on the benefits of it in a whole range of different areas. I'd love you to talk to some of what you've researched, what you've explored about the science of meditation. What are some of the benefits of it? What do we know about the impact on the brain? What's some of the science? scientific findings that we've discovered?
1: So, I mean, if you go and look at, you know, studies in mindfulness, there are literally thousands of them. I can pick out a few that have stood out to me and blown my mind as a doctor and really inspired my passion around this. There were many different studies around a sort of an eight-week mindfulness program, where you do 30 minutes of meditation a day. And they found that the area of the brain, um, the prefrontal cortex, which gets a lot of airtime now in in the mainstream media, uh, which is our most evolved part of the brain and which is the part of the brain that helps us to actually focus. It's our focus. It, it, It holds our attention. It's also the part of the brain that helps us inhibit our automatic reflexes. So for example, if you're angry, rather than screaming or reacting immediately to whoever the person is that's triggered you. The prefrontal cortex helps us to pause, take a breath and inhibit that automatic response, which is such a useful skill. And it also is responsible for memory, learning, a really important part of the brain. And they found that in a regular mindfulness practice, that part of the brain actually grew, thickened, and so there's a suggestion that you know the architecture of the brain actually changes we know through neuroplasticity and it's ch- it happens to be changing the part of the brain that is so helpful in all of these areas and it's it's not that surprising because we know with neuroplasticity what we practice repetitively grows that particular part of the brain so if we're practicing piano then the motor cortex of our fingers is going to change. So meditation is really a practice of attention and focusing and present moment awareness. So it's, it's exercising that part of the brain that is responsible for focusing and all these other things. So that, that's pretty amazing. There was another, another, another research study that looked at the amygdala. So the amygdala being the it's a bit simplified, but the fear center of the brain. And we know that people that suffer from anxiety, if you look at them under a brain scanner, the amygdala is slightly enlarged than the normal population. And so research has shown that regular meditation practice actually reduces the volume of the amygdala. And that is the the implication or suggestion there is that it's not as active, so it's reducing in its efficacy of being anxious and fearful, so it's reducing anxiety. And we know that many studies have shown that mindfulness can really help with anxiety symptoms and and depression, many different mental health issues. And then maybe one final piece of research is uh, looking at even down to the level of gene expression. And so it was one day of mindfulness like a full day of practicing uh, was shown to change the expression of the genes in our body that produce inflammatory proteins and so we know that inflammation in the body is really bad and that leads to lots of different you know autoimmune diseases lots of different chronic illness and so just in one day of practicing you were changing turning the volume down on how much the genes were expressing this negative protein To say that it's a transformative practice is not an overstatement. But what I was quite interested in, you know, I think your listeners, many of them are probably very driven, ambitious people with careers and maybe families or maybe not, but busy. Uh, And so it's always this time factor. How do you fit this in? And, And a lot of the research looked at 30 or 40 minutes of practice a day and I was interested in, well, what's the least amount that can bring benefit you know let's talk efficiency here <laughs> so so i run a program which we'll probably talk about mindful in may which is this uh, you know 31 day essentially meditation challenge where we offer everything to people daily guided meditations and video expert interviews and we have thousands of people around the world doing this every year so i recognize that there was a cohort here that we could actually do some research on so we collaborated with monash university and we wanted to explore is 10 minutes of meditation a day enough to bring measurable benefits because that was the challenge it's like commit to 10 minutes a day and do mindful MA. and we found that it was um, this was from preliminary research and it was not we weren't brain scanning people we weren't taking blood tests it was self-reported, but we did have significant numbers in the study. And we we, we saw that after a month of doing Mindful in May and committing to the 10-minute practices that we offer, people reported, you know, increase in presence and focus, uh, reduction in negative emotions, improvement in positive emotions, and we gave them a flourishing scale. And there was an improvement in a sense of flourishing as well. So I thought, you know, that's, again, preliminary research, not brain scans. Can't say it changes the brain, but can definitely say that just even 10 minutes a day is worth it. Don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think people think if they can't do half an hour or you know they can't do it every day they're not going to get benefits, but I think the the research shows that you can.
0: You're speaking my language when you talk about efficiency. <laughs> How can we put it in amongst it? And I think because The other thing that comes to mind, if I think for me personally, not only the half an hour, but it feels like it's the half. It takes a half an hour to get that half an hour ready, (laughs) to to then be present, to have everything, everyone kind of out or everything off, or you know, put those distractions aside, and then make it right, and it's got to be good along the way. So it, it feels bigger than just you know I've just got to find half an hour so I love that sense of finding the time and even 10 minutes can have a significant impact some of the science that you talked about in terms of brain imagery and changing our brain and particularly changing our genes and reducing the inflammation is just I mean it's mind-blowing really when you think about The impact of what that practice can do. If we go into some definitions here, because I think that's useful for listeners, but also for me to get a sense of what is mindfulness? And probably the second question to that is the distinction between meditation and mindfulness. Are they interchangeable? How do you kind of define the two? So what is mindfulness?
1: Well, I might start with the the other one. So I mean, meditation is a general word for a practice that we're doing with the mind to somehow train the mind in some way, alleviate suffering, have some sort of sense of an improvement in our in our mental state. And there's obviously many different schools of meditation that off, many come from different religious different religious groups. So whether it's you know Buddhism or Hinduism, and there's all kinds of different meditation. So it's a very general word. I kind of like to use the metaphor of sport. Meditation is like sport. And then there's cricket, tennis, you know, all kinds of sport. And so mindfulness, the word mindfulness in the ancient texts is sati. And it's, it was really translated as to familiarize or to remember. And so it's about familiarizing oneself with the mind and also remembering where our mind is at any given moment. So remembering to come back to this present moment because the nature of the mind is to be very scattered when it's not trained and we're constantly flicking between future and, and past. And so it's this remembering to come back to here and now so that you can be present in a conversation. You can meet your kids wholly. You can be come back to the here and now of your emails rather than getting distracted. So mindfulness is a term that does come from a place that happens to be a buddhist text but it's obviously become very generic and you know vague and so the practice of mindfulness of this present moment awareness is is trained and strengthened through mindfulness meditation through the practice of sitting and anchoring your attention to the breath or sounds or various other objects but it's this idea of that we need to train the mind to be present because it doesn't do that naturally. And just like any other skill, as we do it repetitively, the brain is changing and moving towards a more present focused brain that can stay focused. But it's not, you know, it's not just about sitting and carving out 10 20 minutes to meditate. Mindfulness is about remembering, again coming back to remembering to be present and come back to presence throughout the whole day. It's not just that you do 10 minutes and you feel blissed out and then you go to your life and you're all scattered. It's really about there are many practices around how to bring this into everyday life. And that's really what I'm passionate about, helping busy people make this thing doable. And that's what we do in the Mindful May program. You know, we offer other ways to bring this and integrate it into your life, not just in the meditation Even though the meditation is an essential part of the training,
0: I love that sense of to remember to be here with so much on our to-do list. Or you kind of you can be in a moment, but not really there. So it's that call or the invitation back through that practice. And we definitely, I definitely want to dive more into mindful in May. Before we get there, I guess diving into meditation or even that that sense of mindfulness to remember, to, to be present, to be here. I know personally, um, and also plenty of people that I've spoken to, busyness can be a, a form of procrastination. It's a form of avoidance <laughs> in some ways because I don't want to be sitting with how I'm feeling. I don't want to face what's maybe going on around me and so um, I'm too caught up. I don't have time. I don't have that 10 minutes to be mindful. And I've heard you say that meditation can be an agitator. Sometimes it can kind of heighten uh, emotions. How do we sit with I guess those, if we go down the emotions path and kind of look at that as a, as a thing that mindfulness can bring up for us or as a way to, to feel calm amongst the chaos, what do we do if some of those feelings that we just don't wanna feel come up um, and hence therefore mindfulness is not for me or meditation is not for me? Talk to me a little bit about your experience or your advice in that space.
1: It's a really great question. And I think what comes up in response to that is thinking about the why, the why of meditation and the purpose of it. And so most people would come to meditation because they're stressed out and they know, oh, I know meditation is supposed to be good for stress. And if I do meditation, I can feel calmer. So that's usually the general entry point. And if they don't have the right support, like some kind of interactive back and forth, then when they sit to meditate, it doesn't always feel calm as we've just highlighted. It can feel very agitating. And, and that's when a lot of people go, oh, I can't meditate. I'm a terrible meditator. No good. And they just abandon it, which is a real shame because you do need support. This is a skill and a practice. You do need support. And these kind of th- things do come up. And so I think it's important to realize that meditation, it can help us feel more calm and help us manage stress, but it actually is something much more profound than that. You know, it's, it's actually about self-awareness and it's about this space that we create to recognize what's happening here and now. And sometimes that's not good, but when we make space for it, we can connect with our lives in a, in a way that helps us stay on track and, and meet challenges in the moment rather than, as you say, procrastinate or not feel our feelings and then be turning to Netflix, binging or scrolling numbly through social media or turning to the kitchen and just eating chocolate, emotional eating. So the why of meditation for me is like to live a life, to live a life wisely and on purpose and meaningfully and so it requires courage actually to meditate because because it's not easy all the time and it is not a balm it's not this immediate balm that we just put on life that this is like an escape room to just go and get some calm it's it's actually it's not like a massage, you know, where you go and it's so relaxing. Oh, yeah, sure? not, Yeah, <laughs> but, but it offers something so much deeper than, than just the calm. Like you get the calm as well. I think I love this expression, which was um, from Pema Chodron, the American meditation teacher who's wonderful. She talks about meditation as a training in discomfort resilience, So discomfort resilience, you know, and let's face it as humans, we have to face a lot of discomfort in our lives. There is no one on this planet that can go through life and not face, you know, some kind of illness in yourself or your family, loss, change, that's the nature of life, change. So in some sense, I see meditation as building that discomfort resilience, as well as offering us some tools to manage stress. So coming back directly to your question around emotions, signing up to a course, you know, having the right support so that you can get over these predictable obstacles that come up in meditation is key to getting to reaping the benefits. Uh, because you need to be guided around how to okay, what do I do when the boredom and the agitation is so strong? I just want to scream and this is awful and you know, you need guidance. And and, and interestingly in the ancient scripts, there were monks that faced all these things as well. And there are prescriptions and antidotes to all of this. So that's the kind of thing that we offer through that one month journey, you know, that we know what the, what the obstacles are, they're predictable. And so we help people get over them so that you can actually really reap the benefits. But I also, if you don't mind me adding there, like you know, the listeners might be hearing that going, Oh, I've got enough discomfort in my life. I don't want to add something that's going to make me feel more of the discomfort. I want to say that our nervous systems are on overdrive all the time. And so I do find in teaching meditation that there is this relief that does come for people because when you settle into meditation, you're you're switching on that rest and digest, that parasympathetic nervous system that most of us don't connect with at all. And it's quite unfamiliar. And that's why people fall asleep a lot when they meditate because it's the first time in months that they've actually felt some kind of ease and settling and and we're not used to being in that state unless we're asleep. So it's a wonderful thing to, to practice meditation and realize that you can move through your day in a much calmer-centered way and not fall asleep. You know, you get access to that calmness that's not sleep but has an alertness but helps you to you know, manage the kids, manage your team, workplace, get on stage and speak without freaking out. There's just a real gift that comes with it as well. It's not just discomfort resilience.
0: It's not a promise that you will, but I think what you're talking to is that that discomfort is there, the stress is there, but here's a tool and to to take that quote of um, Pema's is that it be, helps you with that resilience yeah. of it. And I think one of the things I hear people say is feeling like myself again, like I don't need it to be perfect, but I don't feel like I'm getting lost in amongst the stress and the mess.
1: I was going to say, I, I, took, I went away just for a night without the kids. Um, cause I was since, you know, in a busy period at the moment and went away and I took a girlfriend, it was just total privilege to be able to do that as a busy working mum. And, you know, I'm meditating and, and, and she had fallen off track with the meditation. And so we were meditating together throughout the day. And she just said, Oh God, I've fallen so off track, but it's so good to be back here, you know? And, and I think All of us struggle when we're overwhelmed and busy to get back to that place, whether it's exercise or meditation, it's just, we need help to, someone needs to hold our hand and just get us there. And so that we can sit there and remember our connection to this practice and the fact that it is good and it helps us so much. And so that's why, you know, the program that I'm offering, it is that sort of first step, just show up, don't worry, just show up, get there. We want to pull your hand, get there, and we'll take you on the journey. Just keep showing up and trust, you know, trust if you just keep showing up, then you'll start to feel those benefits.
0: Really hearing that that strong sense of support. So talk to me a little bit about Mindfully May. Talk to me about the program and the kinds of support that is available.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned through the through the campaign over these many years and through teaching people is that I really believe that community is such a powerful ingredient to creating lasting change in our lives because we can all fall off track. And that's, I suppose, why personal training and these group fitness classes are so powerful because we we are held accountable. And so that's a real key element, I think, of Mindfully Made. And so it's this sense of a global energy that you're doing this with thousands of people in real time over the month that holds people. And I think it's also the sense of we're really offering doable practices. We're not saying that you need to do 30, 40 minutes. And then in addition to that, there's also, you know, when you sign up, you get the daily guided meditations and you get these video interview teachings. And we bring together, honestly, you know, the best people in the business, you know, the leading teachers and leading neuroscientists looking at the brain. And, and we're really committed to, getting the wisdom nuggets out of these people and the actual actionable things that you can bring into your life. So in your relationships, in the workplace, with your kids, all areas of life. And then on top of that, we're doing this for something, not just for ourselves, but for something greater than ourselves. And so MindfulMA is about addressing global poverty and specifically bringing, um, clean water to people in developing countries So we fund water projects and to date we've raised over a million dollars for the cause. So it's really inspiring. and huge. And people love to know that they're signing up to something and you pay your registration fee but then you kind of make a donation to dedicate your practice to something bigger than yourself as well. So it's got all those elements of kind of do good for yourself, do good for the world. And I think it is that being held by community and, and, a, and a bite-sized practice that really brings quite significant changes for people.
0: Having run Mindful in May for a number of years, what has surprised you? And whether it's about the community, about some of the outcomes that you've heard, what, what has surprised you over the years?
1: What surprised me is that when I began teaching meditation, it was all in real time, face-to-face. And I mean, even before the pandemic, I was running Mindful May, Maine, it was online. And so I did wonder about the, the, whether you lose a lot online and how it's transmitted. And I think what surprised me is the power of the way that you actually can have a sense of community online. And we all know that now through the pandemic, but it was before that, that I was quite amazed at how these practices can be so powerful, even delivered, not face to face Um, and also, I mean, every year at the end of the campaign, I think I have been kind of surprised that one month has really transformed people, you know, and, and catalyzed, catalyzed a bigger journey, you know, catalyzed a bigger journey. And there are people that have been doing Mindful May for nine years that we've been running it and they come back every time and then they stay on with the membership program that, that I run off the back of it. And it's been like the start of a really significant change and, and improvement in their lives.
0: You spoke before about the importance of consistency and and obviously community. What would you say, like some of the things that I, I imagine you might hear from people is A, meditation mindfulness is not for me um, and you know, I get a week into it and I'll fall off the, off the wagon. So what's the point? What would you say to, I guess, those comments that no doubt you've heard over the years?
1: Mm. I'm sure many of your listeners have read all of the habit books. I'm just sure of it. So probably I'm going to share something that they already know, but I think one, we, we interviewed BJ Fogg one year, who's the author of tiny habits and an absolute must read book. He's an expert in habit formation. And one of the things he said that stood out to me was that, you know, we can so easily, if we just don't follow through on something, come up with the conclusion that, oh, we're just not good at making habits or we can't, we're just that person. We can't stick to things. And there's a black and whiteness about that. And he was saying that, if you tried to create a habit and it didn't work, then think of it as an environmental design failure. And what he meant by that is don't put it all on you. There's specific factors and ingredients in your environment. For example, did you have enough support? Did you have enough accountability? So the things that are external to you. Did you make it obvious and easy enough? Did you start off too big and that sabotaged you? You know, you started off with 30 minutes of meditation a day or maybe you failed at 10 minutes a day. So try one minute a day. So rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, I'm pathetic at this, know that it's really human to fall off track and that it's just about starting again Uh, and coming back to it again with compassion and kindness. And, you know, this compassion, self-compassion piece is a really big theme that comes through mindfulness and and the program that we offer. And I think that that's probably one of the the more life-changing aspects in, in the practice, that when we start to become a bit more forgiving and compassionate to ourselves, then we can actually progress more because you forgive yourself. You go, you know what, okay, I gave it a go. It didn't work. And that, that happens to people. They, they sign up, let's say to Mindful May. I've had many people actually write to me and go, Oh, I signed up four years ago, totally fell off track. And now I've come back and this year I'm meditating every day and I've been meditating for the whole year or whatever. So I think it's also timing. It's timing and environmental design and not being hard on yourself.
0: I love that. Not being hard on yourself, set up the environment, um, do what you can get those supports but also that sense of self-compassion which is so true in so many areas of our life if we were to just give ourselves a little bit more break we're probably doing way more or achieving more than than what we're actually giving, our, giving ourselves credit for mindfulness can also be a path to creativity to kind of that self-expression talk to me a little bit about the i guess the benefits of mindfulness are on on creativity and is there a difference between mindfulness and and say daydreaming if if there's a you know a different kind of sense of that is there a, you know where ideas or concepts or things that are kind of beyond ourselves which is often what kind of creativity is and i kind of see creativity is it's not craft, it can be just new ideas, it can be just thinking of kind of new concepts. But how does mindfulness help with that kind of expansion of thinking? And is there a difference between mindfulness and and say daydreaming?
1: So to start off with mindfulness and daydreaming, I would say they're definitely different. I would say they're almost opposite in a way. So daydreaming might be you're sitting here and you sort of get lost a bit in just your own mind and it goes into all these different directions, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a creative state to be in, and you might do it when you're going for a walk on the beach un- unnoticingly or before you go to sleep. And so, daydreaming is great, not a pro, you know, It's a, it can be beautiful, but it is not mindfulness meditation because actually, mindfulness meditation is that you're being very aware of where the mind is, and you're focused on continuing to stay here and now. So in fact, when your mind is daydreaming, you're going to be letting go of the daydream and coming back to this breath in this moment, because it's a kind of training that you're doing. Having said that, there's all different kinds of meditation. So there might be other schools where there is daydreaming meditation, but it's not mindfulness meditation. And I would again, encourage that it's not that thoughts are bad or daydreaming is bad or that's not what's going on in meditation. We're not saying thoughts are bad. We're just recognizing that for most of us, we can so easily get caught up in thoughts and lost in them and pulled into the quicksand of them. And they're quite unhelpful. So for example, take that's, I mean, that's what stress is. Stress is stress is an untrained mind flicking off lots of thoughts that we're getting pulled into and it's actually amplifying the stress. And then that kind of thought proliferation is being echoed in the body and creating negative effects in our body. So mindfulness meditation is actually offering us a choice point. It's actually giving us the freedom to notice when our mind, what our mind is doing at any given moment and whether that's what's called wholesome or unwholesome, so helpful or unhelpful. And then being the choice point of like, actually that pathway is not serving me. So I'm going to let that go and come back here. And that's what it gives you. So coming back. So that was sort of the daydreaming mindfulness meditation piece. And then the creativity side, I mean, I can speak from personal experience, which is probably less significant because it's like cohort of one, it's not really science-based, but from my own personal experience, it has been incredibly powerful for creativity. It's, it's really what, I mean, it's what to completely flipped my career trajectory out with may, And that was really an idea that emerged in meditation, in deep meditation and, and allowed multiple different ideas to collide in a new way. But we also know from the research that, you know, there are different brain waves, different kind of levels of consciousness that we have. So meditation helps us to drop into the kind of brain waves that we know sort of correlated with insight, moments of insight or creativity. And they've studied monks and looked at sort of the Olympic meditators and seen that it's the gamma wave, the waves that are related to creativity and insight. These monks are like in that state nearly permanently, you know? So, so it definitely gives us access to a different level of consciousness that opens up more opportunity for, for new ideas. And, you know, an example for me, I wrote a book and there were days that I would just be really stuck. And so I would recognize that I'm in stuckness now. And I'd actually just up the dose of my meditation and just sit for longer in meditation. Cause I just trusted that If I gave myself that space, new ideas would come. Uh, And, you know, one final story, my meditation teacher, uh, you know, he was because someone asked him once in a retreat, what do you do if you're in meditation and you've been sitting with this problem and then you just get the answer? And he was like, he said, you know, that happens a lot. He gave an example that he was, he was a monk, but he was also doing a PhD And he was grappling with this problem. And he said one day he was meditating and then the answer came and he said, I stopped meditation and ran off and like wrote it down because it was too important. So you have to be discerning. And he was, he said, you know, if you're having creative, amazing ideas every five minutes, you're not going to keep writing them down, but it does support creativity and problem solving. And so if you do have a great insight, there's no rule that says you can't stop meditating and go and write that down. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, that would be me all over for sure. But that sense of, um, yeah, letting go of a problem or at least bringing a problem to a meditation, not for the purpose of solving it, but being open to what our brains might be able to do in that moment is is really powerful. Now, I know you're a parent, you've got young kids. Again, we've had a couple of years of, I think, heightened change, heightened anxiety with our kids. Them, I guess, really understanding that life can change very, very quickly. For my kids, there were bits of that where they loved because all of a sudden mum and dad weren't on a plane every second week, they were home all the time um, and they thought this was fantastic. In terms of mindfulness, and no doubt there's there's plenty of people listening that going, you know, I'd love to kind of bring this to my kids. We are hearing a lot more in schools, that sense of kind of mindfulness and meditation. How has mindfulness helped you as a parent?
1: It's a big topic in its own right. And the first thing I would say is that I truly believe that the way that you can most powerfully affect your children through mindfulness is by embodying it and practicing it yourself. You know, (laughs) trying to introduce practices to your kids when you're off the rails and not present is just a total contradiction. So yeah, number one is start doing it yourself because the power of this practice to help you stay cool under pressure, meet people in relationship with more presence will be transmitted so strongly. But after that, there are so many different practices. Uh, uh, Probably, We have um, an expert, Susan Kaiser-Greenfield, who's coming into the program, who's written the book, The Mindful Child, which I highly recommend. So we have meditations that are specifically for kids, that can be done and you generally would want them not doing long ones. So there's actual meditations and then there's, there's practices. Like for example, with my kids, we do like I have the meditation bells and I'll just ring them occasionally. I'll say, Oh, let's, let's sit down and listen to the bells. And you tell me where you, when you hear the bell disappear. So just focusing practices like little ones sprinkled throughout we do, you know, for, for my kids, when they were little, I had Meditation Buddy where we'd get a teddy bear and put it on their belly and I'd get them to start to connect with their breath and watch the teddy bear go up and down with the breath. So there's lots of different little things that you can do. But I think one of the practices that I've found very helpful as a parent, my own practice, is the rain practice. And this is an acronym. So rain, R-A-I-N, which is a pretty well known mindfulness practice. So the the acronym is recognize, allow, investigate and nurture with kindness. So, So this is a practice that you can bring to difficult emotions. So if you're triggered by someone or if you're just feeling any difficult emotion, then you bring this RAIN practice. So for me, it was like if there were tantrums or if there was a difficult interaction with my child, then you, the RAIN practice is, and you do it silently in your head, you know, you just run yourself through it. And it's about meeting high emotion with more mindfulness and more presence. So number one is recognize. So it was like, recognize what you're feeling. So I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling frustrated. A is allow. So it's actually making room for whatever is there because we try to resist the difficult feelings, allowing, okay, I'm angry, allowing anger to be there. I is investigate. And that means really inquiring into what's going on here. What am I feeling in my body? What stories am I telling myself about my kid? Let's say it's in relation to a kid, something's happened and you've got a whole story that's amplifying and exacerbating this particular incident. You know, what am I telling myself? What am I feeling? What, what do I believe sort of exploring the mind and the body in this, in, the, in that moment and then N is nurturing with self-compassion. So it's just whatever's going on, you're recognizing I'm just a human. I'm trying my best, you know, and, and just bringing some kindness to yourself. Uh, and you can do that practice either in the moment or, you know, like literally I have sometimes said to my daughter in the middle of a, a, a tantrum or a whatever, mummy is going out of the room to take some deep breaths. I will come back in a minute. And I'll literally stand at the door, do a few breaths and like try and run myself through that process. And it's really, really helpful. Or if you don't have that window, cause it's all too heightened, then you do it afterwards. And then you actually make sense of what's happened here. And, and then that can often lead to, you know what? I was actually wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. I was too hard or I was too controlling or that just wasn't fair what I did, you know, and then you go back and repair and apologize and whatever. So that's been a really helpful practice that I use actually everywhere. I use it with the family, kids, partner, work colleagues, everywhere.
0: It's That's really powerful. I mean, a set, allowing that kind of recognising, allowing, investigate, because often there is things that sit underneath and then nurturing yourself. And I visually, I can almost see that sense of kind of rain as well, which kind of comes down with that sense of calming. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's yeah, incredibly powerful. In terms of mindful in May, for those that are listening going, Sign me up. I need the consistency. Community sounds great. Access to really great leaders in this space. Uh, practically, how do people sign up? How do they register? Super simple. How can they be a part of it? Super
1: simple. Just mindfullymay.org. Register now. <laughs> sign me up. Yeah, sign me up. And, and it is only get once a year. Them. It's a once a year campaign. So you've got to get in before May the 1st. Uh, and then, as I said, for people in the program, we then offer this ongoing open-ended membership with people who've been in there for four or five years. And, and I run kind of monthly teachings and, and meditations. And for people that might sort of not be sure, I've also written the book, the happiness plan. And that came off because people that missed Mindful May were like, Oh, what if I miss May? So I've written the happiness plan, which is also a one month guidebook for people that might be hearing this podcast outside of May and miss the boat.
0: Beautiful. So May each year, going for a month, that consistency and support and the happiness plan as a book. Elise, I've loved this conversation. I've got one final question for you. This podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life?
1: Oh, I think it means doing everything you can to be connected to what matters most to you and to live according to that and really stay connected to that on a regular basis because we change all the time so just making sure that you have practices that anchor you and open up space for reflection so that you're 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 constantly questioning you know what matters most to me and you're trying to kind of navigate and direct your life along those lines i love that
0: i'd sign up for that for sure Mindful in may we'll put all the links in the show notes Elise, thanks so much for your time
1: pleasure thanks for the conversation
0: thank you so much for tuning into this conversation with dr elise one of the things i took away was the difference between mindfulness and daydreaming i've always thought you know when i'm just thinking about things that's mindfulness but i've really taken that away it is letting that go and that we can incorporate mindfulness into any activity. It's not just about kind of sitting down and the meditation pose. Things don't need to be right or to be perfect, but it's just a call back to that present moment. So I loved that conversation. Hopefully you got a lot out of it as well. Just as a reminder, the movement is Mindful in May. You can go to mindfulinmay.org or you can go to at Mindfully May on Instagram and find out more about how you can sign up and be part of the 31-day program. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, A Real World Guide to Get Clear, Find Purpose and Become the Boss of Busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website www.allisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ally Hill and this is Standout Life.